Faisal Khan is a banking and payments expert with a background in electrical engineering. Faisal, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Glad to be here. The world of banking and financial transactions is becoming interwoven with the world of engineering. What are the biggest indications of this shift? I think, um, I mean, with engineering, I would, we, I would assume you're talking about software engineering because I'm not sure too. I'm not too privy about the hardware side of it, but on the software side, you know, there's a, there's a huge amount of surge in the number of fintech companies. In fact. A statistic came out very recently that there are approximately 8,000 fintech companies in the U.S. alone, 8,000. That means there are more fintech companies than banks, uh, so to speak. So I think that is a very good litmus test indicator of how you know interwoven the space is and how much talent is going into it. The H-1 visa process, um, I think about 88% of the people who have who applied for the H-1 visa in the U.S. were directly related to CompSci, software engineering, and so forth. So I think it's it's pretty interwoven. Everything we do now is all about apps and technology, isn't it? So uh, I think it uh, it's it's as it's as close as as it's ever going to get. I'd like to spend time talking about the macro world of payments. Just to give people an idea of how fast things are changing, and then we'll get into the details around cryptocurrencies. So I've been listening to your fantastic show, Around the Coin, and one thing that you've discussed on the show is Starbucks. How is Starbucks iconic of the changing payments industry? Well, first of all, it's a, it is a food and beverage retail uh, company that just happens to have uh, a very large market share, approximately 90 to 95 percent of the mobile payments done in the U.S. actually belong to Starbucks. So if you look at the, uh, and this is not value-wise, this is you know quantity-wise. So if you look at all the payments that people are doing on the mobile every day in the U.S., 95 percent of those are being done by people who are having or want to have coffee. So. Needless to say, there you got a lot of coffee drinkers, but you know, other than that, you have something that people are very comfortable in using, and everyone loves their Starbucks, you know, uh, payment methodology. It's not changing; it hasn't changed. It's only improving. So I think somewhere down the line, someone at Starbucks is going to say, you know, we have this program; it's super successful. What can we do about it? Can we take this payment system and juxtapose it to, let's say, or extend it out to Burger King? Can we extend it out to uh, CVS, you know, the pharmacy? Can we take it out to the gas stations? Would people be willing to pay using their Starbucks mobile application, uh, the Starbucks money that they have on their Starbucks mobile card, uh, and pay at other look retail locations? And the answer in many cases, and I've done some very, very brief research on it and Brian Romley is the one who's done a lot of research on this thing. He's my co-host at Around the Coin. Um, and the the numbers are overwhelmingly in favor of extending the Starbucks mobile payment app to other locations, to other merchants, to other businesses and so forth. So I think when you look at the macro side of it, you know, we, we all agree that we are going to go mobile uh, if we haven't already gone there. Uh, and Mobile just doesn't mean a mobile app. It's just mean that the payment instrument it would be residing on the phone or the payment methodology would be residing on the phone. 
it seems to be a pretty big uh, thing in the U.S. Uh, and it is uh, for for many reasons. But you have to understand that mobile payments really didn't start, if you're looking at a macro level, from the U.S. They actually came from Philippines. Uh, Smart is a telco, a cellular company in Philippines. That's where mobile money originated. Uh, the next country in line was uh, M-Pesa, uh, which is now the you know the poster child for uh, all things mobile money. Then there are two other uh, countries that have an amazing setup. One is uh, Easy Pesa in Pakistan, and the other is Bcash in Bangladesh. They're huge. Uh, I mean, you can. I bet you can't go to a regular farmers market. I mean, a regular farmers market, and buy you know couple of vegetables and pay using your mobile. It's just not happening in the U.S. But it is happening in Kenya. It is happening in Philippines. It is happening in India and Bangladesh and Pakistan and uh, Thailand and Vietnam and so forth. So that's what mobile payments is all about. It's just using your mobile to pay. It doesn't necessarily have to be an Apple Pay or, or a Venmo app or a Starbucks app. Those are things that are good on you know the smartphones and are prevalent in, let's say, North America or Europe. But on the macro side of things, everyone, because people will forget their wallets at home, but not their mobile phone, you know? And if right. you have your mobile phone, you have your wallet, essentially. Right. And so, yeah, this uh, the reason I, I asked you to describe this macro, and I'm, you did a great job of describing it, is uh, I, I do want to give engineers an idea of, like, how big the space is and how rapidly it's changing and how much of an opportunity there is and also just what the end user experience is like um so you wrote a quora answer about why the payment space is so complex what are some of the reasons for that complexity and what should engineers keep in mind when building around that complexity i think it's uh complex for two reasons number one it's complex because it's it's made complex. It isn't supposed. It, it you know finance and banking is, is in many ways just a uh, something that's been given a bad rep for for good or for bad. I don't know, but it, it really isn't all that complex. The, it, but if you start reading you know economic books and so forth, etc., it gets complex. So it it is the, the the basic elements of money transfer, banking, deposit are very simple, but the. the the sad fact is many people don't know the basics. I mean, if you don't know the basics, it's very difficult to comprehend, you know, more uh, technical stuff, so to speak. And the second thing is legality. If you understand the legal framework under which payments are built and structured and function, uh, it makes the whole thing more easier. Engineering talent is great. Without engineers and being an engineer, engineer myself, I can tell you this, without engineering talent, there, this world as we see it just wouldn't exist. But the fact of the matter is you can't have a very uh, tunnel vision onto the whole, you know, the whole side of payments. You need to look at left and right. You need to get out of the silo and see what's happening, why things are happening in payments. Engineers are very intuitive by nature. They can, they can juxtapose whatever is happening in the physical world very well onto the digital world, you know, into ones and zeros. But if they don't look out what's happening on the physical world, if they don't see how behavior is happening in the physical world, everything we do, everything an engineer ever does is modeling from the physical world. I mean, that's a given, everything we do. So if you look around and see how transactions are happening in the marketplace, how transactions are happening in the city, in the geographic region, in the state, country-wise, region, between countries, 
uh, in specific verticals like shipping or trade or you know uh, rice trading produce manufacturing healthcare if you look at these verticals more than just what they are but more from a behavior point of view i think you would have a very great insight the demand is huge it's it's unfathomable right now to find good engineers not just coders coders there are plenty right but good engineers engineers are that are all rounders that understand the behavior the human psyche the ui ux um, and many other facets that go with payments there's an extreme shortage of them i mean it's it's very difficult to find them so let's get into talking about bitcoin software engineering daily has had a few episodes about bitcoin and the blockchain already but there is probably still some confusion in the audience about what Bitcoin the blockchain is. Um, in your work, you spend a lot of time talking to people about Bitcoin and its implications. What are the things that people are most often com- confused about? Or like, what things do people misunderstand? Well, I think the first thing I do is when I go to, to an audience and I talk to them and I say, well... Um, I usually go out and take some money out, some hard currency, and I said, again, I'm willing to wager this into the crowd and give it to you if you get one question right. It's a very simple question. What is Bitcoin? And, you know, I'll probably hold like a hundred bucks in my hand. Uh, And, you know, hands would go up and someone would say, well, it's money. I said, no, no, no. Uh, Someone would say, oh, it's digital currency. I said, no, 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 not that. And, you know, the hands go up, the answers are wrong. I said, first and foremost, Bitcoin is a protocol, just like SMTP, FTP, HTTP, etc. It's a protocol. It just happens to be, and it's our sheer bad luck, that the very first application we decided to build on top of this protocol happened to be money, and we happened to call that application Bitcoin. But if you can understand the very basic, that it's a protocol for value transfer by consensus that is decentralized. Not many words here. Protocol, we all understand protocol works on the internet. What does it do? It does value transfer. How does it do it? Does it by consensus. What's the beauty of it? It's decentralized. No one controls it. So when you put these four things together, you really understand what Bitcoin is all about. And I think this is where many, many, many people don't understand it. Very, very mature bankers don't get it. You know, very seasoned bankers don't get it. Uh, They don't understand why this is such a big fuss. Back in the 80s, uh, when you used to have email, uh, you know, Fedonet used to have its own, Bitnet used to have its own, CompuServe its own, everyone, Genie used to have its own email. And then someone decided to make, you know, the at the rate symbol and decided to make something called the SMTP, the Simple Mail Transfer Protocol. And suddenly all those uh, segregated email ecosystems were now connected. They were one. And you could send email from one person to the other, and that's it. Why? Because simple mail transfer protocol. We had an underlying protocol to do information transfer. Now, when we do that, if I send you an email and if I put an attachment to it, doesn't matter if it, if ten people other get you know if ten other people get it or keep a copy or you know if I send the email to you twice, etc. Because it's information. That's okay. But if I send you money, I certainly do not want ten people to get it. I only want you to get it. And I certainly should not be able to send it again and again and again to you. You know, the whole, the whole issue of double span and triple span, etc., etc. But, but surprisingly, many, many people don't know. What the blockchain does today is it exactly mimics 
what the banking centralized ledgers are doing today. So let me explain. When a person in, um, when, when let's say Deutsche Bank from uh, Germany decides to you know, push 100 million euros to uh, Bank of America in New York, there's no actual push of money happening. It's just that the consensus ledgers of all the central banks are saying, okay, we're going to minus 100 million from Deutsche Bank, and we're going to add that 100 million to JP Morgan Chase or Bank of America or whatever it is. That's it. It's just a consensus. It's all the banks who are the consensus members agreeing that we are now reducing wealth of Deutsche Bank by 100 million euros and taking that wealth and adding it to Bank of America in New York by 100 million. That's it. And it was an internal right. consensus. So if the blockchain is the very same thing except it's external consensus, it's decentralized. Anyone can partake partake and participate in it. So that's the right. very and basic that, that people just don't get. Right. And fundamentally, it removes the need for that centralized middleman bank. And middleman banks are responsible for skimming off all kinds of transaction fees that uh, just devalue the economy as a whole. So um, uh, let me let me run one sort of a side example to you. When you send an email to me, and you know when before we did this podcast, we exchanged a couple of emails. You were certain of two things. You were certain of one thing that I would get the email, which I did. But the other thing that that you you perhaps did not know, but you were very certain of otherwise, perhaps in the back of your head, is that I would get the complete message. If you sent me a hundred words, I would get a hundred words, correct? I mean, that's that's the basic of email, right? You, I'll get whatever Absolutely. you send me. But in the payments world, when we exchange money, how would you feel that if I send you a hundred dollar payment, you only get 97 because 3% was taken off, right? I mean, that's that's accepted by us today in this world, you know? We, we charge a fee for sending money. But that same principle doesn't apply to information. How would you feel if I sent you a 100-word email and only 97 words arrived over there? You'd be outraged, right? I mean, you'd be fuming. You say, why? Why are you taking you know, 3% of the words of my content out? There's no reason to right. do so. And that's the same thing. This is why we should be screaming. And I'm being a payments and a banking consultant. I say this out loud. We should be screaming, yeah. why are we taking the fees out? People always give you the excuse, which is you know to shut the the general populace of, you know, it takes money to move money. Of course it does. And why does it take money? Because we've made, why does it take money to move money? Because we've made it so. It's just, if, yeah. if we come to a consensus where it doesn't take money to move money, hey, you know, we'd have a perfect world and we would have a payment network that would enable you to do transactions as many times as you want. Right. So um, let's get into a little more uh, increasingly complex stuff. So how is Bitcoin being used for creating custom con- currencies and custom financial instruments. So I, I don't know of an example where Bitcoin is being used as a custom currency per se. I do know that the blockchain is being used uh, because it's a consensus ledger. Uh, it's not being used for uh, currency per se, uh, in, to the best of my knowledge. I mean, you've asked me a question, which is, do you think that banks would ever be using, you know, be making their own currency? Would banks be adopting the new currency systems? Uh, let's say, let's say the example of Bitcoin. I don't think so. The banks would be adopting Bitcoin anytime soon. Uh, there are three reasons for this thing. Number one, it's not a legal currency yet, so you know, they don't, their charter, national or federal or nationwide, would not allow it. I don't think so. The regulators are going to declare it as a currency that the banks can use and keep, and they'll, they'll probably 
label it as private money just like Germany has done it. They'll label it, label it as no different as, let's say, gold or silver, but not as money, not as, not as a currency. And the central banks don't allow, will, probably won't label it as money either. They'll, they'll label it as value, digital value, alternative money or whatever, but not currency per se. But what you're saying is the real innovation behind Bitcoin is it's a solution to consensus in an untrusted network. And you're also saying Bitcoin is the first implementation of that solution. Um, it is. And it is very much so. In that, in that sense, it, it is kind of the minimum viable decentralized technology. So to put a finer point on the fact that Bitcoin is just the first invention of things that can be built on blockchain, what are some other examples of things that could be built on the blockchain? I think there are so many examples uh, that can come onto the blockchain. I think people are looking at basic record keeping and record keeping starts with, let's say, the financial system, the healthcare, uh, identity management is a huge issue. How do you, uh, today we can tokenize payments. You know, we have the EMVCO uh, standards uh, that Apple uses for Apple Pay, which is basically tokenization of the credit card data. I think it's it won't be long before we will be able to tokenize our identity uh, in a consensus manner. Something that I call federated identity management by consensus. So you would actually, we all would be, you know, if I present a token saying I'm Faisal Khan, uh, you would actually be able to say, yep, you know, you are who you are because I know you and I know you through Facebook, I know you through Quora and then you can give me some added vantage points and such, a, such an identity consensus can be kept into the blockchain. It can be used for voting, it can be used for record management, land record management, stock ownership. There's so many areas and the, beauty, the beautiful part of it is it really doesn't need databases, you know, it really does not rely on Oracle or a large, you know, server form of SQL servers, etc. It's all on the blockchain. It's decentralized. It's a lot of machines computing it and keeping it in their record. So Ripple is the second largest cryptocurrency by market cap, with two hundred sixty million dollars uh, worth of Ripple by by the current price. Ripple is a pro. They call themselves a protocol for the Internet of Value. Um, mm -hmm. How would you contrast Ripple and Bitcoin? So the first and major function is Ripple is multi-value. Within the Ripple system, you can own and have many, many. Ripple is basically, you know, money by its, let me just go take a few steps back. Money by its definition is an IOU. It's nothing more than that. When you have Bitcoin, you don't actually, what you are, I mean, you certainly are holding onto ones and zeros, but what do they represent? They represent an IOU, an IOU of the current market value, right? Uh, and when you pair that IOU with the US dollar, you now have a currency pair, an IOU, you know, paired to the US dollar. And that makes the price go $280 or whatever it is right now. Ripple is no different. Ripple is an IOU mechanism, except with with Ripple, you have you can have multiple currencies within the Ripple system. You can actually create your own currency in the Ripple system. And Ripple, Ripple's mission is not so that Ripple or the XRP is used for a value trade. Ripple's mission is to uh, not make their XRP as something uh, of a currency per se, but Ripple is more of an IOU messaging service that would allow banks to connect their ledgers and be able to trade with each other 
instantly electronically and those uh, when you send money like i gave the example of a you know when you send money to me you'd probably use the swift network and your money would go to a correspondent bank which would go probably to another correspondent bank which would come to my bank and all this relationship took weeks to build because you know they had to do contracts etc etc now when you send email to me we didn't have uh, contracts we didn't have anything it's just it just finds a route you know it just finds a route to me and it, it comes to me likewise ripple is the same thing it finds a route to me and if i have a trust relationship with the route which is very simple to establish we can exchange money and we can exchange money in real time and settle in real time so that's what ripple is and ripple by is, route by route you mean uh conversion from one currency to another which is that, which is kind of a crucial point well that's something that's optional uh, that is something if you oh, want okay. to do it, you can actually do dollars to dollars. You can actually do XRP to dollars to dollars to XRP. You can do dollars and gold. You can have anything in the Ripple system. The thing is that you and I can, based on our nodes and our trust, decide to trade value. It's all about trading right. value. And it's it's a little it's a little difficult to explain Ripple if you don't know how the banking system works. Uh, specifically, the banking ledgers and how money is transported today. If you understand that particular problem set, uh, and then if you understand what, what uh, Ripple does, you'd be blown away. It's exactly the same thing of, you know, uh, when you look at Bitcoin and we look at the Bitcoin protocol, you know, people who really get it and understand it are blown away because of the fact that we can now do value transfer on the internet. We can encapsulate or attach value and send it across and be rest assured that they'll get it and that value retains its value on the other end. Likewise, could in the you, banking... Could you, give me the elevator, could you give me the elevator pitch-sized version of why, you know, what I would need to know for my mind to be blown? Uh, so take the same example of um, the email. You know, when I told you that in, in the early 80s we had very segregated networks, you know, CompuServe could only send email to CompuServe. Genie could only send email to Genie. Bitnet could only send email to Bitnet. And when email had to go from Bitnet to CompuServe, you had to have an intermediary that would take the CompuServe message, juxtapose it and translate it onto the Bitnet network and then send it across. And for doing so, they would charge a fee. And it's not, it, was, it was not a very simple or, or a very easy way of doing it. You actually had to write very complex code to do that interchange. This is the way banks are and the, the financial system works today. You can't just push money from one bank's banking system to the other and expect it to go through. It takes weeks and weeks of contracts, negotiation, credit lines, trust lines, approvals, etc. for all this to happen. Uh, when you implement the Ripple protocol, all the banks that are on, appearing on your Ripple network and node, it's an instant transfer. You know, boom, money sent, that's it. So tomorrow, as more and more people or more and more networks, more and more financial networks get on the Ripple network, and that can include financial institutions, that can include gateways, that can include market makers, and that can include independent people like you and me. As we get onto that network and the network grows, you have a payment system network that is instantaneous, that is real-time, and addresses all the security concerns, all the monetary settlement concerns that the existing system has in play today, but is very, very complex. So it's, for right. an average... And 
I want to say one thing, just one last sentence. For an average sure. user, for an average user, that may not mean much. But for anyone within the banking system, it means a whole lot more. Right, absolutely. And some of the science behind how Ripple forms consensus across the network is actually really fascinating. Um, where where Bitcoin uses proof of work, Ripple has a different form of consensus. Um, do you do you have an understanding of how how Ripple's I, consensus protocol works? So you know the consensus again is based on the ledger entries coming in and everyone saying, "Yep, I've seen, I record this transaction," and they look at the network and say, "Okay, who else is recording the transaction?" It's a consensus by consensus, uh, literally because. There is no mining work that needs to be done. It's it's just looking at more and more people saying, okay, these, you know, if I have a majority of more than let's say, eighty percent, I'm just giving a number. If more than eighty percent of the nodes are are acknowledging that transaction, you know, this is a transaction that's good to go for. There is a very cool um, presentation given by the chief cryptologist at uh, Ripple. Uh, I'll try yes, to it's on YouTube. I will put that in the show notes. Yeah, that was, and, and he explains it so well. And I mean, so well, I had to go through yes. that presentation twice just to, and, and you know, like, wow. Uh, and he does comparisons yeah. to, you know, when, when people say, well, how does it compare to Bitcoin? And he and, and he'll actually tell you how the block works and so forth. Uh, then that's that's going into the engineering level, which I rarely ever visit. That's like going, for me going down to the basement. You know, I don't go there. Uh, Absolutely, but, uh, Absolutely. that's totally understandable. I think I think maybe a fair comparison would be like, you know, if if I go into a mine and I just like spend a bunch of time in the mine and then I come out with some handfuls of gold, hmm. I can say, hey, look, you saw me go into that mine. I spent all this time mining it. Like, here's the gold that I that I found. Like. Hmm. And that's like in Bitcoin. That's sort of like how you're confirming, you know, hey, this the I am I am a legit person. I've got legit value uh, because I went into that mine. I got all this gold out. Whereas in Ripple, you sort of take advantage of the fact that, like, you know, um, I'm say I can say, uh, hey, Faisal, you know, you I know you trust me, right? You you you've known me for a long time. Um, you know, I'm good for this transaction, hmm, uh, and hmm. because of that trust. Uh, you know, we can just leverage that. You know, we don't need to, you don't need to see me go into a mine today mm, and mm. Uh, and 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 swing my pickaxe and get gold out because all we're really doing there is we're going through this exercise of of uh, of you gaining of you gaining my trust by seeing me swing a pickaxe. That's not really necessary. So I think that's kind of what what Ripple says. So, exactly. And you know, I want to say one thing. When we, you know, when we start out in college or maybe in early high school or whatever, and we do maths for the first time, mathematics, you know, we're given the equations and we taught differential equations, we taught Laplace and Fourier and uh, in physics we might do the Newton's first law, second and third. These are all things that happened way back, 1700, 1800s and early 1900s in in some cases. And yet you say here we are in, you know, 2000 plus with 2015 why are we still learning and doing maths and basic principles that are 200, 300, 400 years old? But because we're doing them because they still apply and they still govern our mathematical and physics system today, right? Likewise, it is very important for people to understand, not just today, but if you go back 100 years, 110 years, 120 years, 150, 180 years back, even as back as 1647, when the central banks were created, 
we need to understand, people need to understand what happened to the commodity-based thing, what happened to the central banks, how did they come in, how did this cartel of bankers come in and how they create money today, how that money is, how we are plugged into that money and you know how that money is moves around in society, how the ledger positions are balanced. It is not complex at all. In fact, it's a very fascinating story if you get to read about it. There are plenty of people out there on the on the internet who've written about it and speak about it. The funny thing right. is we, How, we find, oh, we find it so bo- – the, the funny thing is we find it we, – we assume it is going to be so boring and so complex, uh, but, you know, that couldn't be further from the truth. It's very simple to understand. Absolutely. And speaking of things that are not boring, how does Ripple compare to Stellar? Interesting question. So there are forks of – Stellar is a fork of Ripple. Um, they're pretty much – I, I mean, technically, I can't give you an answer because they're still working on the Stellar code, and Stellar is less stable than Ripple. That's what the last. Well, I so heard. from a high from a high level from a high level, I've heard that Ripple is uh, is deflationary, and Stellar is uh, you know programmatically it's inflationary. Um, does that actually mean anything? It does. Uh, you know, obviously, they are both pre-mined, right? So they all come with their own number of XRPs and Stellar units, whatever it is. And it's how they keep pumping it into the system. So, so it the, the the Ripple protocol is between if you are looking between Stellar and Ripple, is much more um, seasoned, if you will, more mature. Stellar has yet to make its mark. It is a promising technology. They have looked at some of the, in their opinion, faults of Ripple and tried to make it better. Uh, but we don't have a working example yet. We don't have a very stable code base that is out there that is scalable to take the kind of transactions that the real world demands. Um, Ripple has been very good at this thing. Uh, they're building, their, you know, they're, they're evolving their code on a daily basis, and they have some very good clientele that's now starting to use Ripple. So they're more or less the same, more or less the same. But one has a one has a couple of clients on the ground. The other one really doesn't at, at at this point in time. And what is so fascinating about Ripple and Stellar is the tension between centralization and decentralization. I was talking to a Ripple advisor yesterday, and I was telling him that you know the the centralized aspects of Ripple, like it's still by by its nature, it's still decentralized. If if Ripple Labs went out of business. You would still have Ripple, but the centralized, uh, you know, aspects of Ripple make it such that the documentation and the YouTube videos produced by mm. Ripple, like you talked about the tech talk, right? Mm-hmm. There's these these resources are so fantastic. They're professional. They're high production quality, and you know, in some sense, this is like a negative or a negligible aspect of a new currency, and that's what the crypto anarchy type of people might say. But, but um. But, you know, these, these marketing materials are actually really important because a currency needs strong network effects. Yes, and sir. if you have a great marketing team, like, it really helps. And so it it's, just, the, it, it's, it's the difference between a hobbyist and a professional. That's the way I would put it, you know? So it, it, this is not a hobbyist thing. When you have to walk into the corridors of banking, echelons, and so forth, you need to be taken seriously, you know? For that to happen, every aspect, every iota, every facet of your presentation and your documentation and your delivery has to be top-notch. And that's what Ripple is doing. 
Right. Um, so, do you trust Chris Larson? I do. <laughs> I do, in fact. Good. Yeah, I mean, so, I'm, I, by my gut, you know, I would, I trust him, too. Uh, so, what would you say to the crypto-anarchist types who are, like, skeptical of the fact that... And Chris Larson, by the way, CEO of Ripple, um, and, you know, when Ripple was instantiated, uh, Chris Larson was one of the people that got a bunch of XRP. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, <coughs> personal wealth issues aside, he's a person who's uh, well-respected in the community, in the financial world. Uh, I wouldn't say the fintech world, but certainly the financial world, corporate America, Wall Street, etc. He is not that well-known, but he is known. He's known a lot, you know. If you had John Matonis from, let's say, blockchain or bitcoin come over there you know john is known amongst the bitcoin community not amongst the wall street guys chris is known amongst the wall street guys so right now it's all about banks that's that's what ripple is doing ripple ripple doesn't want to work with you or me at the moment ripple wants to work with the banks because it's it's the 80 20 rule right 20 percent of the banks are running 80 percent of the world's money if you can get those 20% of the banks signed up and using a better, more efficient, more 21st century protocol to move money, why not? You know, why not? Why not go over there? So I think I think Chris Larson has, has a good reputation so far. People trust him, the brand, the company, the team, and the product itself right now. Right. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Stripe. Stripe is a company that does payments for software developers. Where does Stripe fit into the Ripple and Stellar uh, future? And like, do you I, well, have any idea where Stripe is going? So, <laughs> Stripe is going places, definitely. I mean, uh, so Stripe is an investor in Stellar. Uh, you do know that, right? Yes. The, uh, so I think that may be the the mood point of Stripe. I mean, that's something that's you know, like the black child, if you will. It's something that they don't want to talk about it now because of all that's been happening, you know, Jeb McCaleb and all that stuff that's been happening in Stellar. I think uh, Stripe maybe made a bad decision. I don't know. Uh, That's my personal opinion. In hindsight, it's very easy. Well, didn't they invest... When they invested in Stellar, didn't... Like, it was at a much higher market cap, right? It was. So my answer to that is... In hindsight, it is very easy for you and me to make that decision and say, well, you know, they did this and they did that, etc., etc. You know, like it's like watching pork, the poker game on TV. You can see everyone's <laughs> hand and you know, say, oh, you know, why didn't he do this? Why didn't he do that? But when you're actually playing poker, it's a little different, isn't it? So I think in hindsight, it's, it's, it's very easy for us to blame, you know, Stripe and Stellar and so forth. I think at that point in time, they think uh, they they did what they thought was right by investing in uh, Stellar. Uh, today, I think that opinion might not be true. I think they'll eventually maybe write it off. I don't know, but I think Stripe is doing all the right things when it comes to payments, electronic payments. They've just signed up a deal with Visa. They've raised some fantastic money. They've got all the VCs watching them. Their evaluations have been very good. They're loved by the community. They have a product that not only works, it is nurtured, it has many flavors, all the flavors are selling like hotcakes. They're making money. They're doing everything right. So I think Stripe... Right, and so 
So from a software engineering standpoint, how should developers, like if I'm a developer, I'm developing my application, and I'm looking at the different payment options. I'm looking at Stripe and Braintree and PayPal and Square. How do I decide which of these I should go with? Well, the underlying code now that's being offered by, let's say, Braintree or Stripe or WePay or PayPal is pretty much, you know, give or take the same. It is, I mean, it's between choosing a bicycle and a brand of a car. So now it only depends, do you want a Chrysler, do you want an Audi, do you want a Mercedes, what, if, what do you want? You know, it, it's, it's two wheels versus four wheels. So there are, all these companies are essentially four wheels. So now some has some have four wheel drive, some have automatic transmission, some have manual. So it all depends on how much horsepower you want, what sort of feature sets you, you know, are going to get. They will all do payments for you. Now, depending on your particular use case, you may be you know, positioned for the snow. So you may not want something that will slip on the snowy roads. You may want to go for a truck. Uh, like in your application world, you could be developing applications for third world countries or for uh, international payments. Uh, PayPal may be your best option. Stripe may not be your best option. Stripe is more concentric and focused towards the US side, state side. Um, uh, if you are a marketplace, you may want to go with WePay. WePay's uh, platform and you know platform as a service that they now offer has a full stack solution for marketplaces. So if you're an aggregator or what we would call in the payments world a payment facilitator and you're a principal member of Visa and MasterCard and now you want to roll out your own you know marketplace gateway and payment system, WePay might be the best option for you. So I think it's it, 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 there isn't one answer that I could give you. It, it really depends on the feature sets, the underwriting, the type of payment you want to do, um, and the code. Okay, got it. So, so there's no one size fits all. No, basically. no, no. So um, what about Ethereum? What is Ethereum? You know, I, I'd love you to explain that to me. <laughs> I'm trying to, I, I, watched uh, that, I watched that I'm video. hoping to do a show on it. Oh, I would love to listen to it because I am in trying to wrap my heads around it. It's something to do with contracts, and and I, you know, I I get it, but I don't get it. That's the problem. I so I, my I, understanding is that it's it's like where Bitcoin is decentralized payments. Ethereum is like the ultimate generalization of of all this blockchain stuff because it's decentralized computing. Like instead of just being able to execute any type of payment you can execute any type of computation across the entire network, which is kind of mind-boggling to think about. Um, so, so see, now it would okay, be mind-boggling to a, a ComSight grad, not a regular person, right? Right, I mean, well, a regular person, I assume their mind would be boggled even more, or they wouldn't even know to what degree their mind should be boggled. <laughs> I hope so. Um, so anyway, let's, let's, talk about, let's talk about a little more high-level stuff. Why is remittance such a big market for the digital payments revolution? It is not a big market. It's a very small market. It's about $600 billion a year. In comparison, uh, it's the low-hanging fruit. That's why it's there. So if you're going on a bicycle and, and the bicycle happens to be a startup and you're going down and you learn how to pedal and you know, ride a bike, the lowest fruit you can basically touch is remittances. So these are like cherries hanging down the tree and they're the easiest ones that you can get. Uh, because there are so many bicyclists who are reaching out for these cherries, 
all the low-hanging fruit has gone. It's now a very competitive business. But in market size-wise, it's a very small market, about $600 billion a year. Just to put that into comparison, the B2B international payments market is $22 trillion a year. Um, to put that into comparison with ACH, which is about 40 some trillion dollars a year in the U.S. alone. And to put that into uh, comparison with, let's say, the foreign exchange market, FX market is $5 trillion a day. A day. That's, that's what gets traded every day, $5 trillion worth of FX market. On the low side, maybe four, $3.5, 4, $4 So remittances just happens to be the low-hanging fruit, and that's why everyone goes for it, you know? Right. Um, so how is the banking world... Uh, going about adopting these new currency systems, I hear about you know some some are aggressively adopting it, some are uh, not aggressively adopting it, some are paranoid of it. Um, so what is like what are you seeing? So I don't know of a bank per se, a licensed bank that has actually adopted Bitcoin. Uh, I do not know of a single world case right now. I do know of regulators trying to regulate it, which is, you know, give it coverage, give it legal coverage, maybe not as an official currency, maybe as a side currency, maybe as an alternate commodity or whatever it is, but, you know, regulated. I've seen banks, the only thing I've seen banks get excited about is the blockchain. That is what they love because they see a potential, a very large potential in that technology. They see things happening their their CIOs, their CTOs, their tech teams are now getting excited because as more and more fintech companies are coming to banks, are coming through these incubation and accelerator programs where these banks are going just to get some sort of semblance as to what's happening out there in the, in the fintech world, and they sit down with people and they understand what's going on and they see what the blockchain can do, they can see many departments within the bank just improving by hundredfolds. Um, there's a there's a company in um, in the Barclays Accelerator program in New York called OGY Docs. Now OGY Docs does something that is not known to most people. It, it, there's something you, I'm sure you know about a shipping container, right? Everyone knows about a shipping container. Sure. Uh, they go on trucks, they go on railways, they go on ships. But what you don't know is that a shipping container cannot move. It cannot move without something called a physical document, a paper-based document called a bill of lading. It's not landing, lading, L-A-D-I-N-G. Without a bill of lading, a shipping container just cannot move. That's the, And why, you know, you can go research on it, you can go read Wikipedia. It's basically the instruction set on how to move that value of goods against a certain payment and promissory note. Uh, and that's what a bill of lading does. It, it's about a seven or eight billion dollar market bill of lading. It's all ha handled by paper. It's all sent via courier, and sometimes you know those FedEx parcels get lost, the UPS parcels get lost, and guess what? The shipping container stops right there. And this is the kind of technology which would make sense of coming into the blockchain, where the bill of lading comes onto the blockchain, whereby consensus they say, okay, yeah, you know, this can move over here. Yes, I've got the container, and you update the blockchain, and everyone knows where the container is. Everyone knows where the value transfer is happening. Everyone knows that the shipper has received it. You know, the sender has sent it, etc. The shipping line is is delivered it, and so forth. So 
that's the kind of problems that blockchain is trying to solve. Now, these are not normal, everyday Joe Schmo problems that you and I face, but these are things that you know, commercial trade or international trade divisions within the banking departments look at. So these are the kind of things that they are trying to automate and say, you know, if we can get better control, not just amongst ourselves, but universally across the globe, uh, then hey, so, you know, even better. So to close out, I'd like to get some of your thoughts on economics as a whole. I think that many, many people have a mistaken idea about economics as a zero-sum game. And I think there's this mistaken idea that there's this fixed amount of value that gets traded around from one person to another. And people often think it's like it's like the law of uh, like thermo, thermodynamics where you know value cannot be created or destroyed. And this is false. So no, another reality yeah. is that... So, so this other reality is that value is not tightly coupled with currency. So how do, you, how do you disintermediate for people that value and currency are not the same thing? Very true. They're not the same thing, but they've been forced uh, to deal with each other. Money created today is created not as a value, it's created as a debt. Do you understand what that means? That, by definition, should make you pick up arms and, you know, your Second Amendments and what have you and, and put you in a rage. It is created as debt. That means, very simple, if there are $10 in the economy, only $10, the, the market is such, the, 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 the system that we live in is such that the market loans out $90. Now, that $90 doesn't exist. The $80 don't exist. It's only $10 exist. So the first thing is we've actually deflated the, in, the, the, the value of the currency. Uh, inflation has set in. And where do you get the value from? The value can only come in through natural reserves or natural uh, resources. You either use, take human resources and you know exchange their time for money, or you take natural resources like gold, oil, cement, uh, real estate, etc., and exchange that for money. But the, the sad fact is that if all the people who borrowed those 80 bucks somehow managed to return it, there is, uh, you know, if you have 10 gold coins and you lease out 10 gold coins into the market, and all those 10 people who've taken the 10 gold coins give it back, do you know what problem you have? Now, it's, it's, everyone might say, well, it's very simple. We had 10 gold coins total in the economy. We you know, loaned them out and everyone paid their loan back. So we got our 10 coins back. So what's the issue? Well, the issue is you have one little problem in the system and that system is when you loaned the money, you loaned it on interest. So let's say the total interest on those 10 gold coins was half a gold coin. You got the 10 gold coins back, where's the half gold coin of interest. You only have 10 gold coins. How do you return the interest? The answer is you can never return the interest. So you keep lending and lending and lending and this is why the economy keeps growing and growing and growing and we have the indirect tax known as inflation which is what you do, what happens when you increase the money supply. So it's a, it's, it's a bubble that's going to burst some point in time. Some point. This is why the national debt increases. It never decreases. Because there is no way. Because if people start paying back their loans, all the loans, keep paying back, and we'll get all our 10 gold coins back, 
who pays the interest where is that interest half a gold coin it doesn't exist <laughs> right okay well fascinating um faisal khan thank you so much for coming on to software engineering daily it has been a real pleasure talking to you and uh i look forward to hearing more on around the coin in the future thank you sir take care great um yeah yeah take care have a great day